I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. This month, Bioshock. Imagine yourself in 1982, wherein the pinnacle of narrative for a video game consisted of ravenous yellow sphere eats phantoms, or uniformly cued extraterrestrials attack Starbase, or giant ape steals Italian day laborer's girlfriend. Now, try to describe to your average adult a game with narrative depth, colorful characters, and an imaginative setting rivaling that of great films and literature. The idea would have seemed anathema to the common understanding of the medium, as alien as, well, a city at the bottom of the ocean. Now flash forward 25 years, video games have made enormous leaps in graphical fidelity, complexity of gameplay, and diversity of story, as well as finding audiences outside of the dimly lit arcade or smoky tavern. The Super Mario Bros. series, story-rich role-playing games like Final Fantasy, Chrono Trigger, and Earthbound, and set-piece-driven first-person shooters like Half-Life and Call of Duty. The notions that video games were toys or solely a children's medium had eroded, but in 2007, a relatively small development studio released the standard-bearer for idea-driven, narratively-focused video games. It was called Bioshock. Bioshock is a first-person role-playing game that introduced a setting both marvelous and terrifying and gives the player superhero-like agency to explore it. This place is the world of Rapture, a city at the bottom of the ocean, created in an alternate mid-20th century by genius industrialist Andrew Ryan. It's a crumbling metropolis awash in gorgeous deco architecture, B-movie sci-fi tropes, on-the-nose radio advertisements, and a legion of crazed citizens mutated by genetic engineering and a virulent ideology. You play a castaway of sorts, who happens upon the city a year after a civil war has ravaged its structures and left its surviving inhabitants scrambling for control of a collapsing society. The game was a smashing critical success, garnering a bevy of Game of the Year awards and selling over 4 million copies. Along with near-universal acclaim, a good deal of Bioshock's themes and characters have entered the internet lexicon. Big Daddy Little Sisters, A Man Chooses, A Slave Obeys, and it even put the concept of objectivism into the spotlight for further debate. Bioshock moved the needle in a big way. Ideas, ideas, became a thing that video games were asking us to consider. Bioshock 2 would be released in 2010, although not made by the original developer. Its true sequel, Bioshock Infinite, would not surface until 2013, as Irrational Games created a wholly new setting, the early 20th century floating city of Columbia. It recasts a similar formula from the original, but places you in a nation of white Christian ultranationalists who worship America's founding fathers as demigods. They have seceded from the Union and founded their own country in the sky. However, class inequality and racial tensions are ripping at the city's seams, unveiling the dystopian core of a city with tranquil Disney-esque pretensions. Roundly praised for its film-like visuals, engaging characters, and its bravado at tackling such ambitious and mature themes, its success raises many questions. Is Bioshock art? High art? Does it elevate the medium? 
And these highfalutin questions are the topic for this month's panel episode. Let's close the door on the bathysphere, jam an enormous syringe into your wrist, and put the ink spots on the Victrola. This month, Bioshock. Okay, guys, let me introduce the panel. First up, we have game journal, blogger, podcaster, and video producer for Big Fish Games, Carlos Rodella. Hey, how you doing? Good to have you here. It's good to be here. Yeah. <laughs> Next up, and yet another first-time panelist, part-time philosopher, part-time idea man, full-time ladies man, Patrick Johnson. Hey, great to be here. And last but never least, Atlas to my Andrew Ryan. <laughs> Atlas to my Andrew Ryan, Elizabeth to my Booker, Electro Bolt to my Wrench, Mike Gillis. Hey, good to be here. Okay, I'm going to start with you, Carlos. Yeah. You're a professional of sorts. Oh, okay. You play a lot of games, lots of games, I right? play many games. And not just for pleasure, too. Uh, I want to ask you, when you survey the spectrum of video games, where does Bioshock stack up in your estimation? Well, for the intro, it was great. Um, basically, I think it, when it came out is how it uh, it blew up. Because basically, I feel like games had been the same way before where you could have choices and there's first person adventures like Deus Ex and stuff sure um, but it's just when it happened it kind of came out of left field and I just feel like it did everything right it hit the it hit the feelings and the feelies that I got from Fallout right that kind of old timey music the weird place that I'm trying to explore and mm-hmm. understand and the weird kind of propaganda stuff is happening sure so yeah I think it's it's just when it came out made it bigger than it is. I think it's a great game. Like, like it was just right for its time. It was right saying. for its time, mm-hmm. yeah. It's mm-hmm. almost like Teen Spirit or something, right? Nirvana was... I, I love oh, Nirvana. Wow. I thought you meant the deodorant. Oh, no, no. <laughs> that is a good deodorant. It's always the right time for Teen Spirit. Yeah, that's, I think, their slogan. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just like the right place at the right time. I definitely am going to talk, and we're all going to talk about how good the game was, and I loved right. it, Right. Uh, especially this first one. Right. But I think it's it's pretty pretty high up there. Yeah. Patrick, I, uh, before I asked you to do this panel, low many months ago, I, I, I heard that you hadn't actually played the original Bioshock. I was wrong about that. Um, you hadn't finished Infinite, but I want to know uh, where the whole thing stands for you, someone who didn't finish, did not finish the uh, Bioshock Infinite, but you had played it very many, many years ago. Yeah, I actually did go through Infinite for this panel, okay. and I thought it was glorious. But the first Bioshock... Is looms large in my memory. It made a huge impact on me. Just the world that they created, the way in which it pulls you in, uh, the mystery of it. When you first mm-hmm. land, I mean, it's just a plane crash and a lighthouse, mm-hmm. and you don't know what you're going into. And as you get pulled into the world, it presents something that is really engaging. And the, the real world elements, sort of like Fallout, sort of uh, ground the, the fantastical, and uh, it created a space that has. I don't know, meant a lot to me, uh, looking hmm. back on it and since. It was great to revisit. Nice. So, Mike, this is one of these topics where I think you or I could easily have hosted, you know? Um, but And I know you love Bioshock and all of its incarnations. I, I just want you, in your own characteristic way, try to just describe what's good about Bioshock to, like, a lay audience, people who wouldn't normally want to play a video game. How would you describe it? Um, I'd say it's essentially a game that is incredibly ambitious, that I think for a long time, and I think for most of our childhoods, video games really meant one thing. It wasn't about narrative. It wasn't about ideas. It was about either a challenge or an experience. That there were limits in the technology to how much you could explore this world. I mean, Super Mario Brothers was huge because you weren't just on this static screen like, say, Pac-Man or Donkey Kong. You could go all over this world, and you didn't know what you were going to see next. And... To the level that there was any story at all is that you had this vague idea 
that you were supposed to save a princess and that she was in another castle. That is like, okay, I guess I guess I have to keep doing this. Spoiler, uh, she's not in the first castle. So they, they were right. Yeah. So you just keep saving this just a never-ending litany of these these mushroom guys. And that's about as far as the story got, that mm-hmm. I'm trying to get from the left to the right. I'm trying to jump on guys or avoid guys. I'm trying not to, not to die. I mean, that's essentially what a lot of video games are. And if you look at something like, say, um, Call of Duty, a lot of that spirit is still alive because it's all about the challenge of doing something hard and the accomplishment of doing it in an interesting environment. And knowing that you were able to not get killed by the ghost in Pac-Man, that you're not going to get shot by that guy on Xbox Live. He's still probably going to call you some kind of horrible slur. But sometimes you can avoid that too. But the thing that was interesting with Bioshock is it said that that's not all that video games could be. It wasn't just about making the graphics better, making the control more elaborate. It was about saying, you know, we can actually explore themes that, Normally, people would say, okay, well, video games is just a distraction. This stuff over here, this is art. This is the stuff that we can have serious discussions about ideas with. And the entire game of Bioshock is explorations of ideas. That there is an awesome game with interesting gameplay, an awesome combat system, and the game would be great on its own without Andrew Ryan and looking into questions of agency and objectivism in the free market And the idea of selfishness, all these sorts of ideas, they get packed into this game and in this world because the entire city of Rapture is this physical embodiment of all these ideas and and debates. And you're looking at sort of the corpse of an idea, the corpse of a utopia, and sort of exploring not only why it went wrong, because all the propaganda is still throwing out all the stuff about this place being great, all this place being perfect, all about this place being this this uh, beacon for the rest of the world. Of course, it wants to hide from the rest of the world because it's incredibly insular and paranoid. Mm. But that's something you don't get in a lot of games, a real sense of place, a sense of ideas, and a sense of you actually exploring these and making moral choices. So it was taking games into an area that it had really only danced around a little bit, that you'd got it in a lot of RPGs, but there was always that limit of the technology. And I think it was finally the sense of we're moving into a new era of video gaming. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, you completely blew away my first discussion point, which is about why should we even <laughs> be talking about video games? And obviously, uh, Bioshock is a signpost in the spectrum of when the medium went from simple to complex, right? When I think that, like, to his point, I think it's about the the graphics, and again, to my earlier point, at the time, right? It just, it was a happy medium of everything coming together at the right time, because we had explored those things, and even text adventures in the past. Right. But it was like, the graphics matched up with this idea that we want to explore these things. Right. I have some low points later we'll talk about that I don't think they did well, but I think that's what it was. It was like, everything came together, we got to explore the stuff that we wanted to, and it was on consoles... Right, so it really helped a lot more people yeah, play it, was, it as it, well. It was it was from a tradition that was largely a PC game, and yes, yes it, it broke the barrier over into consoles. Now, I kind of want to talk about this because I think one adjective you you hear people describe who know Bioshock is that it's unique, that it is a very singular setting and a very singular experience. Um, but it is a linear; it is for the most part a linear set piece driven Fallout. Or, Excuse me. Oh, see? No, no, no. Excuse me. For the most part, it is a linear set piece driven first person shooter that is not all that different from something like Half-Life. In fact, Half-Life 2 came out several years before, and you can see that a lot of the DNA of what made it a game 
is borrowed from whole cloth from other games. I mean, um, RPG like features, high concept world building, diary based narrative delivery. These are all things that are not new to the video games as a medium. Um, uh, I can see Bio- or excuse me, I can see Deus Ex as also one of the one of the ancestors, sort of that uh, the DNA of this game. Totally. But what is it about the formula? Why is it the Bioshock formula can put all, meld all of those things together that you've had seen in previous games and do something that seems so different and so profound? Anyone want to take that? Um, I'll start, and I think that some of the, a lot of it's in the minutia or like the aesthetics because those cassettes that you found, mm-hmm. those little audio journals, I keep thinking that it's so in every game nowadays. Like you pick up, even in like Metal Gear, the new Metal Gear, you pick up yeah. these little cassettes. Yeah, that's kind of like everywhere, but it really wasn't back then. And I feel like this idea of a secondary storytelling with the stuff that you were mentioning earlier, that this is a way you can find out about this backstory, which makes the game feel bigger. Than it actually is, right? You're seeing the secondary story play out. Uh, similarly, Braid, I don't know if you guys played Braid, an old indie game, yep. uh, Jonathan Blow, he had a story that was in that game that played alongside the actual action part of it. The action part was a 2D platformer, but he, he had these scripts and these little notebooks you'd read, and that's like a secondary story to the 2D action. So I think that that really helped this game. The atmosphere was great, the steampunky aesthetic, this kind of, again, you mentioned, like, and we both are saying Fallout, Fallout, uh, propaganda-y, 1950s, alternate sure. reality stuff. Sure, And I'm mixing it together with this kind of exploration thing where it definitely, like you said, RPG, it had the RPG feel. I feel like I wanted to get every single little piece of loot in every corpse right. and then find out every single story in every audio cassette. So it might be what we alluded to is that we they mix the RPG with the first person Half Life style. Hmm. That's that's why I think it went okay, Patrick. Yeah, it's the being the fact that parts of the storytelling are somewhat optional, like you either find them or you don't. In both the original Bioshock and Infinite, that's part of what drives the exploration. I mean, it's not always. It's not just finding a, a better gun or, or you know some ammo that you need. It's the fact that you won't know what's going on unless you find every little uh, you know piece of the puzzle to understand these characters and, and their motivations. For me, part of what made it distinctive was it comes back to the aesthetic. It comes back to the, the look and feel. It is steampunky, but it is really original in its, in its vision and mm-hmm. in the world that it creates. Um, I, one of the first things that struck me was the ads. In it. Oh, they, they're they, great! They, yeah, the ads for the plasmids are amazing because they are of a design aesthetic, which is very familiar and very appropriate for the for the era that they're trying to create. But at the same, and helps you understand the mechanics. Um, but then is also fantastical. Is also you know leads you into sort of the magic of of the place. Um, and so it would. The elements are familiar. You know, they were saying System Shock, Ken Levine's previous project, yeah. used yeah. most of the mechanics that were in Bioshock were in, in that game. It's the fact that the graphics had come a lot farther so that the world building could be a lot more sophisticated. Yep. And so you can look through the sort of the fish tank between the parts of the city and see uh, parts of the world that you might not ever get to visit, but that still add in your imagination. That's mm. important when you mentioned System Shock because you go try and play that now. You're like, ugh. It's a little tough, right? The ideas are great. The game is great. But that idea that, you know, Bioshock brought the graphics together to tell out that story. Like you said, a lot of the features are the same. A lot of the gameplay kind of stuff. Yeah. One of the things that I think is really great about this game is the versatility of it because it can adapt itself to the player. That, for instance, um, if you're playing a game like, say, Assassin's Creed, 
there is one way to be good at Assassin's Creed. It's a stealth game. You sneak up on people and you kill them without being seen by them or other people. Mm -hmm. And if you don't like doing that, you're not going to like Assassin's Creed. <laughs> that's just the, the bottom line. You're, that's the only way to play this game. If you run around like you're Rambo, you're going to get killed a lot. Um, the thing I love about Bioshock is if you want to play an Assassin's Creed style stealth game, you can. If you want to be Rambo, you can. If you want to use these clever MacGyver traps, you can. And isn't that such a popular thing now, right? With Far Cry and all these new games, they're like, oh, you can attack the situation any way you want. And that might have been one of the earlier times where we were experiencing that. Yeah, the big backbone of the, the gameplay is that you, to get more powerful in this game, have to get into these battles with these just huge armored guys called Big Daddies who just kind of lumber around in a huge smelly diving suit making whale song sounds. <laughs> um, there's something kind of – we'll get into the morality of this, the situation yes. sort of getting into them yeah. later, but yeah. uh, you have to frequently get into these battles with something much more physically powerful than yourself, and how you approach that is entirely up to you. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think uh, that would be one of the things that I would say uh, – I don't think there are many non-gamers among our audience, but people who, would, who wouldn't maybe wouldn't understand because they haven't played is the fact that every encounter is – is a puzzle because there are many ways at which you can handle them because you have weapons. You also have plasmids, which are superpowers that do various things like you can shoot fire, yeah, shoot fire, shoot bees out of your hands, maybe uh, make a make a decoy dummy of yourself. Um, and then there are some environmental things. Maybe there's an oil slick on the ground uh, that you can set on fire, or maybe there is a turret that you can hack that will help fight the enemies. So a way that one person will play it. It will be totally different approach to someone else. So, Mike, I think you and I told we're talking about this. Is I've played Bioshock. I don't know how many times. I generally tend to uh, settle right back into the exact same play style every single <laughs> time I play it. Yeah, and I will. I'll get the camouflage that allows you to once you stand still, you become invisible to the enemies, as well as make the wrench my primary uh, my primary weapon. So I'll sneak up on people from behind and hit them hit them over the head with the wrench and get incredibly powerful. And I think Mike, you had a different, completely different way of playing it than I did. I call my style and that. But it pretty much translates into other games like Fallout and others. I call it cowardly. <laughs> yeah. uh, what I do is I, I'll use other people to fight for me. I will oftentimes in games have a companion of some kind. You can hack these little security bots, which are essentially just like these crates of tomatoes attached to a machine gun. On a swivel chair. A swivel yeah. chair, and yeah. it looks like it's on a, a ceiling fan that it flies around on. <laughs> yeah, right. It's definitely cobbled together, but I love how cobbled together and uniform they all are. They're made out of the exact same junk. But I like to have one of those nearby because they spot things before I do. I will take advantage of uh, stuff that's in the environment. I don't do a stealth game. But I will do an incredibly cheap game <laughs> where I will do as everything I can so that I can inflict a lot of damage on bad guys while not putting myself in direct physical danger as much as possible and letting other people die for me. <laughs> Before we leave the what makes it great, if that's what we're still in, yeah. I think I have to – I circled this music. Oh, oh my yeah. goodness. I can just listen yes. to that soundtrack all day. I mean – there's so many similarities for me that with Fallout that's ridiculous. It's especially with Fallout Four on the horizon. This concept of uh, the music really setting the mood, and then you just wanting to listen to the music independently of the game—that's a good sign. So that just—I remember that every time I go back and play Bioshock. Yeah, that Django Reinhardt song, oh. the, the La Mer is beautiful. Oh yeah. So just just to note that Fallout Three did come out less than a year after Bioshock. So mm. even though we probably look at it in different goggles mm -mm, now. Mm -mm. 
I was speaking about Fallout 1 and 2. Oh, Fallout 1 and 2, yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yes, of course. Because they've had all that same kind of propaganda-y, 1950s-y, like, you know, right, but here's I think, how you do this. I think there are Ink Spot songs in both Fallout 3 and Bioshock, so there was, there's yeah. obviously some crossover. I think there. Ink Spots was in Fallout... I might be wrong here. Uh, here come the comments. <laughs> but Fallout 1 and 2, I feel like one of those ones used Ink Spots, because they used the Ink Spots, I think, in every Fallout game. I could be totally huh. wrong. The oh. Ink Spots are having a real comeback. <laughs> I've got to say, they were on the yeah. first episode of Better Call Saul. Oh, Their Facebook were. page is blowing up. <laughs> oh, my God. It's like, I'm pretty sure they're all dead now. Yeah, yeah. But they're still is, blowing up. This is the most popular they've ever been. <laughs> if they but, could only know. Yeah. <laughs> Let's like, wake them up and tell them. <laughs> well, yeah, the, I think the uh, the audio is definitely important. And uh, we, if we didn't underscore it before, I mean, you... Um, you get to hear just incidentally. There's a lot of uh, this. There's the sound design is actually really amazing, and uh, you don't you don't get for the original Bioshock. You do, you don't get to it and uh, to experience it all that much. If you do it with headphones on, it's a very different mm. experience because it does have the some DNA of like survival horror games in there. You do feel like you are you're in a steampunky game um, that you're in kind of a. F- almost like a fantasy RPG in some ways, but you're also in a survival horror game too yes. because there are grotesque like thugs all around you with weapons, with clubs and hooks and you know guns around you creeping around the corner and there's lots of jump scares. There's lots of shadows being played against the wall to show you what's going on. Because they're crawling um, in the walls. And and you and you some of these things are you you hear noises off in the distance. You know you know a big daddy is coming somewhere because you can hear his whale song. You can hear mm. yeah, yeah. Uh, somewhere far ahead and you know that it's there. This the sound design is amazing and that of course couples with the the music that so there might be a phonograph or a radio playing still on somehow. Yeah, everything. Even just... years a year after <laughs> the whole society is crumbling. Yeah. that record has just been going the whole time. It's on. Loop, yeah. Somehow, yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, and the audio storytelling, I think that's that's one of the big uh, things. Is that you're right? They, now nowadays you hear like voiceover dialogue, someone radios in, and that's that's the way they do uh, exposition in video games yeah. now. And it was it was unique for that time. It, it was, was composition, unique. you know. It yeah. was like literally, and and it's by it's scene by scene too, right? So like right. here's a location that's a big cathedrally location. This is how the sound effects are going to start being. And here's how you're going to hear an echo of the splicer come from a distance, and you're like, "Whoa, that's yeah. creepy!" Because there's really an echo on it, you right. know? Yeah. yeah, it was it was well done. I also say that um, uh, one of the things about it kind of ca- the the narrative cascades open. Like I think this is the game is balanced very well. Um, if you're not really familiar with video games, the best kind of games are the kind that you start off weak and you get strong. You uh, you start off with basic weapons. You start off with not good stats and the game opens up to you. It teaches you how to play. It gives you better weapons or better abilities, and it does it. It brings challenges that make you have to figure out how to actually use it. Not only does it do, not only does it do that just with its weaponry, it also does it with its story as well. The further along you get, the more it sort of cascades open with what you hear um, in the audio dialogue and the main characters, Atlas and um, and Andrew Ryan, what they're telling you because they're basically in a war amongst themselves, and it opens up to what is a pretty big reveal. Um, And this is going to be spoilers for Bioshock, obviously. So somebody please uh, take the onus off of me to explain the big (laughs) reveal for Bioshock and, and how it's, how it's teased and also how it's executed. Okay. Um, Essentially, if you want to get into the plot of this game, but I'm not really sure we have yet. Not really. uh, That you are this anonymous, mostly faceless kind of proxy character that you don't, you never see the face. You just see his hands that you were in a plane crash above the Atlantic Ocean, 
and you crash down on this this area right next to this lighthouse on a lonely island in the middle of the ocean. You follow it down, take a bathysphere, get into the city, and you're immediately grabbed onto by this friendly voice that's telling you he's going to help you get out of here. It's this guy named Atlas, who's this Irish guy, who wants to get out of the uh, get out of the city too. He just wants out. This city uh, has been entirely built on the objectivist principles of Ayn Rand, which is free market, uh, no no sort of restrictions whatsoever. I guess if I was going to sum up what objectivism is, because I think that's at the heart of this, and it gets into the reveal of this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Objectivism was an economic and moral philosophy that was come up by a Russian expat named Ayn Rand in the 1950s, I believe. She mostly just put it out there through a series of novels, which kind of have the pretense of being a story, but they're essentially just a speech about this ideology. And and again, the, the plot of these books is that it's about ruggedly handsome, individualists who are bucking the system and creating great works that they refuse to compromise and spitting in the face of big government and uh, the clawing hands of the parasites, basically people who want things like public schools and roads and healthcare, but aren't, you know, independently wealthy enough to just pay for it themselves. And what these individualists do is want to throw off all of that, that being a selfish asshole isn't just an okay thing to be. Being a selfish asshole is the best thing you can be. <laughs> right, right. So we have a city that's been built on these principles, and we come into it a year after a civil war has completely decimated it. Things are broken. Uh, the people in this city... Does, have, does that mean it has one-tenth the population that it had before? It probably has... <laughs> it, it probably point, is it has more, point five percent Yeah, people are he dead. Did. There are corpses everywhere. Yes, yeah. And that clearly this is a civil war between um, two different forces, Atlas, who's the, the gentleman you're speaking to over the radio, and Andrew Ryan, who's the... Oh, he's like this Charles Foster Kane type figure, yeah. voiced by Armin Shimmerman, who is essentially kind of like a Howard Hughes figure who decided uh, during the New Deal that he didn't want any of his property, like his, his forests, to be nationalized, so he'd rather burn them down. Yes. <laughs> um, and, of course, in objectivism, this is considered an act of heroism. Right. In the adult world, we called it a temper tantrum. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he built a city on the bottom of the ocean where all the rich people could have their fun and none of the poor, parasitic, you know, teachers' unions could force you to do things like, say, uh, not dump shit in their backyard with toxic waste. Right. So it's all about the idea of the great man. So that's the sort of people that have been pulled into this city. And um, it's fallen apart. And um, what you find out is that your character, who you don't give a backstory to, you just everything you know about them is explicitly in the storyline. Right. That you are essentially a genetically altered assassin that has been artificially aged by Atlas, who is not really Atlas, but is a business leader slash gangster named uh, Frank Fontaine, who uh, went to ex, war. Ex-gangster. Ex, ex-gangster. <laughs> that's an important amount. Note. It's, that's the thing, is in the world of, of Rapture, <laughs> is there much of a difference between a gangster yeah. and a business leader? Yeah, right? yeah. When thing. it's all about ambition and it's all about uh, pushing for ideas and not being saddled with things like morality – Gangster is the way to go. Gangster is the way to be successful. I, it's yes. funny when you... A- Atlas does say, I have to say, early on, Atlas tells you, 
whatever you knew about right and wrong, well, that don't count for much down in Rapture. Like, and that is the that is the the moral horizon, right? For for it is that the, all the rules have been utterly utterly abolished. Yeah, it's the it, a lot of the propaganda you see is all about the evils of altruism. Yeah, that uh, the bad things in the world come about because somebody calls upon your good nature, and what you should do instead is just wall off the rest of the world and say, everyone work in their own effort, everyone be selfish, and that will fix the world. I I feel like I need to just jump in real real quick. It's a low point, and I know we're I'm jumping the ship with this, but um, is that the phrase? Jumping the ship? Nope. It's a shark. I it's believe. jumping a shark. No, yeah. no, jumping the gun. Jumping the gun. I mixed all those together. You, we're you talking might about actually, water. You might actually be jumping the shark. We don't know. But okay, t- uh, sharking us. the gun. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> if you allow me to shark the gun now, yes. <laughs> um, is the the problem is is that that all sounds good, but there's two problems that, and I'll go to I'll save one for my low point. But the problem is is that this video gameness kind of takes over. And if you simplify all what you just said, it's two like dudes who don't like each other and they're getting you to do stuff so you can play out this game. And like, I feel like the low point for me is it's again to shark the tank or whatever (laughs) is that I didn't feel all that kind of messaging and objectives and all the stuff that I wanted to feel when I was playing the game. I felt like, oh, is this guy's trying to dupe me. Obviously, I'm not going to trust him. If you played any video games and you have this guy talking to you in the beginning, you're like, fuck this guy. Yeah. Like, this yeah. is obviously going to turn bad. So you know that if you played any game ever. And then when you find the reveal, it doesn't really feel like that big of a reveal. And I just don't feel like that stuff came across. I wanted it to. Yeah, I, I, I'll agree with you. I mean, there's you, you, uh, you aren't ever free to disobey anybody and Mm. the whole idea about being in rapture is that you you get to you know there are no rules right but because it's a game and because a game has to lead you from start to finish of a level as a game player you're constrained by the rules of the game and that that there's a little bit of narrative dissonance i guess you would say in the way that uh, the gameplay is constructed because you you know would you kindly is the passphrase that that is repeated to you and you don't actually know until the reveal when Andrew Ryan tells you you are an assassin, a sleeper assassin. Mm-hmm. Um, You're an automaton. But but I think it all. It's funny because the um, this is uh, it's it, there is an irony, right? Because you get to the end and you realize like, oh, I've I've been playing and I've been playing the game that they've been telling me to play, but I had no choices to begin with. And you're like, yes, you don't have any choices. You're playing a video game. No, that's, exactly. That's the point of a video game. The most linear narrative, you know, video games give you sort of an illusion that the character is making all these choices, but most of it's laid out for you. Right. Uh, there's very, you know, it's uncommon in games that really let you uh, mess with what they're trying to do because they obviously have to create all the content that you then explore. Right, but right. that being said, there's games now, like Until Dawn, where there's a hundred different endings right. because of this so-called butterfly effect. And I, uh, I, and so, I, would, be, I would be unhappy with a Bioshock that um, really had to branch off that many places there's only because there's only one fate for for rapture, right? There really is only one fate, fate for rapture, mm-hmm. which is that everything collapses, right? Is that that's the that is the destiny of the city? Well, I think that's part of the the theme of these games, and not just Bioshock, but Bioshock Two and Bioshock Infinite, yeah. which is that it's about the illusion of agency. That right. you have these characters, and you are in a video game, and that's why I think a video game is the best place to have this story. And this theme is that what do you have in a video game that you don't have when you read a novel or you watch a movie? One is you you can't be passive. You can't just sit back and watch it happen. You actually have to take a direct hand and make choices. You um, ostensibly are controlling the narrative 
you are making options well, and you you're can, advancing the narrative. I wouldn't yeah, say you're controlling the but narrative. But it goes further or yeah. doesn't based on uh, choices you make that right. you're, you either fail to complete a task or you succeed. And the way you complete, complete that task oftentimes will affect the story. Right. Older video games would be like, say, Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. There is only one way to beat a various character. If you don't know how to beat King Hippo in this one specific way, you will never beat King Hippo. Right. Spoiler, you hit him in the stomach. <laughs> Band-Aids. He's got a Band-Aid there. <laughs> now, I think you're right. And I think that gameplay is part of it. But I guess also I was trying to make the point of that. That storytelling, does, I don't feel like plays out enough in the actual this narrative we're talking about. I, I this, think the setting that it paints yes. makes a, for a very compelling character arc for Andrew Ryan. It makes for a very imp- uh, important arc for the city. And it's intriguing to sort of f- figure out what's been happening in, in Bioshock. But you're right. Like, as far as having some agency, I think actually, I think that, that the, the would you kindly reveal is a bit of a fourth wall breaking meta narrative about the player. Um, and and about the experience of playing video games, right? Wherein choices, uh, we there is some t- choices, right? In qu- in air quotes, but really there is a, there is an end state to the game that is predetermined, and you yeah, have to get there. But the choice was always a big selling point in the advertisement right. for this game that the choices make you rather right. than you make choices. P- play it the way you want to play it, essentially. Um, one just one point on that. Um, Bioshock Two, the sequel of that, which we haven't touched on very much, but it's basically the same game with a slightly different protagonist um they have moral choices where there are set points through the game that you can choose to spare or kill um someone who is an antagonist um and i think i think that one actually has several different permutations of end game well bioshock one has like three endings so and bioshock two i think has like six yeah Yeah. that there's a couple variations there's different shades of whether the game considers you a good or bad person, yeah. depending on the choices that you make. And for the mo- first game, um, actually playing into both the morality question and the question of agency is the question of big daddies and little sisters, yeah. who in a world that was built on free choice and free markets, um, their economy is totally changed by the discovery of this material called Adam, which yeah. can change your DNA. And the way to police that and also keep this place from falling apart, big daddies and little sisters are automatons that are sent in the world uh, to go around and collect this material from even the bodies of the dead to keep that atom plasmid economy going. Right. And I think it's kind of cool that after, I don't know, like 20 hours possibly of this game, if you really explore it, that you find out you're just an automaton being used by the same powerful interests to move this same economy around or place right. it in their favor. And I I know that the big moral question that determines which of these endings you get is how do you treat the little sisters, which getting to them and getting the atom, you know, the, the building block of this superpower stuff to make yourself more powerful to be able to complete the game, how you treat them and how you obtain it is determined by, you know, whether you actually harvest them, which I've never done in the game. I've, I've always played a white hat. <laughs> Apparently, it's like the guy from Indiana Jones, the Temple of Doom. You just rip it out of their chest. Yeah, and harvest is a nice way to say it. Harvest. <laughs> it's but, uh, such a euphemism. But yeah. the other one is that you use this formula that's given to you by the lady scientist who created them. 
that just cures them of being this sad automaton. As they go into the world, they skip around like they're a happy little girl wearing a little sundress. And whatever world there is around them is not the world that they see. Right. That they see a dead body that has Adam in it and they can detect it. And what do they say to their guardian, which is this giant automaton in a it, diving suit? It's an angel. It's an angel, Mr. Bubbles. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we're going to get the angel. I like angels. It's so, it's so heartbreaking and just so, like, malicious at the same time. It's like, a little girl that was turned into a thing. Yeah. And she's yeah. living in a fantasy world where she goes around with a giant needle, stabbing corpses and obtaining material. And drinking it. Drinking it. Yes. To process it. And she's being guarded by this giant monster that to pro- progress in the game, you have to kill. Right. And of all the things that are just insane and selfish and monstrous, even in the ideology, in the DNA of this city and the way it's built, the big daddy is the one truly selfless being. Yeah. Yeah. That he's this monster who's been completely programmed to protect and be gentle to this one creature and is willing to do just massive, hideous violence to anything <laughs> that tries to hurt it. Yeah. And when you see the two of them walk around, you one, you know you have to fight them. And two, you have to make this moral decision. And I always feel bad. Yeah. About killing the big daddy. He's just as much of a victim as the little sister is. And he's just Mr. Bubbles. And sometimes you'll come across a scene where the splicers, who are just these insane junkies who are trying to get this atom, they're trying to get this stuff, are attacking the big daddy and the little sister from a distance. And I just watch it and I can't not root for the big daddy. Of course. Yeah, not. yeah, yeah. And it's if incredible. you look at the little sisters, they are horrified. Like when you're attacking the <laughs> yeah. big daddy, they are they're not okay. They look <laughs> they like are a scared little girl. Screaming. Because yeah. they're very confused. Right, yes. Yeah. Well, uh, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. And we're back uh, with our panel. This month's topic is the Bioshock series. Uh, we haven't really talked at all about the true official sequel, which was Bioshock Infinite. Um, which was actually developed by Ken Levine and Rational Games, the same team who did Bioshock. Bioshock 2 was made by a different studio and was essentially a rehash of the same of the original game. Um, the studio who made Bioshock 2, I believe, was the, a small studio called Digital Extremes. Yep, yep, and they made it. the Unreal games and Unreal Tournament. So they were a big, big deal. It's funny, Bioshock 2 is considered second fiddle. In yeah. a lot of ways, but that, they, there is a very talented team of game of game designers at uh, a Digital Extremes. It is. So. It just it felt more that multiplayer kind of like here we're going to do something that rehashes it, but it's not about the story that we just all talked about. It's more about like the world and having a game great gameplay experience within it, but not about like this. You know, here's the big reveal. Here's the big story. Right? Yeah, I I'm not as down on Bioshock Two as a lot of people seem to be. I think it's an almost unfair comparison when you have this original product, this original story that's so good, it feels almost unfair to compare anything to it, especially something that's a sequel because you have these direct comparisons to gameplay and story. And like most sequels that exist ever, 
it's a rehash. It's the same plot. It's like Ghostbusters 2 follows the exact same plot as Ghostbusters 1, including the thing where they're shut down by a city employee, yep. including the thing that they have a montage that shows them catching ghosts. I mean, all the <laughs> same stuff happens in Ghostbusters 1 as Ghostbusters 2, but the first one is just that much better. Well, then yeah. almost for that same kind of thing, Ghostbusters 1, like Bioshock 1, came out at the right time and the right thing, right? Yeah. All the right ingredients. And I think that's another thing why the second one, which is not the true sequel. Infinite is the true sequel, I think. But the second one is more of like, oh, well, we've seen that. Like, we're not as wowed by all this amazing yeah. world. Well, yeah, once you go through it, you experience the whole thing for the first time. Um, it's pretty astounding. I mean, it's it's a great it's a great experience. Going through it again, the wow factor is gone. The wow factor. But I'll give a pro being a big daddy. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was but, a but cool, you, interesting but you, twist. But you get to be a big daddy in the first one, too. Yeah, but... Don't you like for the very last level? Essentially, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah you, you literally, yeah. it's part of the gameplay though in the second one. Like that, you essentially have to shed your humanity and able to get to the last boss to defeat him. Mm-hmm. You have yeah. to make all these sacrifices to do so. And the villain is like straight out taunting you, saying, "You think this is a one way street?" Yeah. Um, yeah. I think in the second game they start you out in that mode. That, in rather than learning through the course of the story that you're an automaton being used. You know right out you are an automaton, and it's about an automaton gaining agency and learning to make moral choices. And Because you don't know who that guy is either, and you kind of learn in the second game where the big daddies come from. They're political dissidents that stood up and made noise, and they were pulled into secret jail, and they were turned into things. And that is fucking terrifying. It's all very depressing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's really fucking scary. Yeah. I do like the second game. There's one piece of the game that I like so much that I wish had been a part of the first game, which is the amusement park level. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. You go through this essentially Ron Paul version of It's a Small World After All, <laughs> where you go through and it's all about... It's just like a giant propaganda amusement park ride for children, and it's like... Kids aren't going to enjoy this. Yeah, and, it, and it's just it's just Andrew Ryan flexing his ego is what it is. He's telling oh. a story about himself. Yeah, yeah, he might as well just film himself jerking off. Yes. <laughs> I mean that's essentially uh, what it I'm is. I'm so glad he didn't. I'm so <laughs> glad that wasn't in the game. And uh, I do uh-huh. like, even though Andrew Ryan is dead by the second game, that he's still a major part of the 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 story. I mean, he really is the city around you rather than just being this guy up in a tower. But I really like the idea of going through this amusement park and it's like, oh, and the big hand of government is coming to take all their stuff away. <laughs> yeah. well, it's just kind of fun. And that's why Infinite was such a, a, a good kind of feel because you're like, oh, here's a whole other set of rules and a whole yeah. other world. So, Thank you, Carlos. Um, so Bioshock Infinite, very quickly, I think I, I uh, explained the premise uh, in the original. Instead of being under the sea, you're in the clouds. In and, racist Disneyland. Yes, and you are in racist <laughs> Disneyland, of course. Um, and you, you very quickly find you are a, a, a degenerate gambler Pinkerton detective agent who, uh, because of his debts, has basically been cajoled into trying to kidnap a girl in this, this uh, ultra-nationalist floating city who worships the founding fathers as as gods? Essentially, it is super duper racist. Um, yeah, that's, and that's run by a mysterious prophet named Comstock, Zachary Hale Comstock, who is some type of new agey but firmly Christian prophet. And they don't really have a good and universal explanation as to why there are plasmids, which they call vigors in Bioshock Infinite. But of course, their their society is just as otherworldly because it's up in the air. There are roller coaster like rails connecting all of the buildings together that you can ride on with a little hook. And then, of course, there are men who turn into uh, like like uh, Dracula. There are men who turn into bats 
who have coffins on their backs who battle you hand to hand with swords. And there's robots that look like George Washington yes. crossed with a calliope. <laughs> yes. And they fire machine guns at you. But it's a it's a it is a it's a worthy successor and I and uh I don't know where how do we start off in this? I I wanted to say that BioShock feels like the original BioShock feels much like a B movie or like a pulp fiction novel uh of things that are sort of smashed together whereas Infinite I think fancies itself something very different and uh, takes itself a little bit more seriously. I would say, um, does Infinite I take itself too seriously? I don't know, Patrick. What do you What do you think about it? I, I mean, I think it's a, it's a very it's a very different experience. It doesn't have there is a little bit of humor that I think is you get in the earlier games. You don't get said as much in Infinite. Part of the difference in feel for me is when you visit Bioshock, you visit Rapture. You are it's a corpse. It's a city that is on its last leg. And you're just sort of helping close out that chapter. Uh, when you visit uh, Columbia, it's it's vibrant. It's still alive. Right. And part of that's advances in technology. It allows them to have more sprites. You can have more characters mm-hmm. wandering around. And you are the agent of the of the of the downfall of this place. Right. Um, and but in a, but in a way that uh, you know, as far as agency is concerned. In Infinite, I think they they have more of those pay you know press F to pay respect moments. They have the weird little weird little oh, oh this has got to happen. Press the button here. There is a lot more that's scripted in Infinite. Yeah, um, in the you, very beginning, you're playing less of a game in Infinite than you are in Bioshock. In the very beginning, there's some sort of uh, racist moment, and you have to like what is it happening? One of many. Oh, the raffle. They're throwing the, the baseball. Say, baseball, yeah, right? Yeah, the and you, don't, you have to throw the baseball. No, you, no, you, you have, don't. You, right? you have to throw the baseball at at somebody. Right, the, and then it's. I think the first time I. I thought that's what I had to do, right? Throw the baseball at the people on stage, right? Yeah, for, for clarification, you go to a yeah, rally please. and you have a ticket. This is before every the shit gets hit. Gets this heavy, is kind of right? the beginning of the shit hitting the fan. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. It's just chopping just a little bit, a little bit of shit spray. <laughs> yeah. Is that uh, you get a ticket from some guy and there's a raffle and what you win, quotation marks, is the privilege of throwing a baseball at an interracial couple. Yeah. Uh, yes, that are being publicly shamed in at a fair. Of course, yeah. you win the raffle, and you have to make a decision in that moment. Do you attack this asshole who's running this spectacle, or do you go along with it and act like a monstrous prick? Yeah, so I think I just hit some random person instead. Like, right? They Didn't catch, the, no, they they catch you. your wrist. No matter what you choose, they catch they, your wrist. They okay. stop you. So that's what I, okay, so I remember. The mark of the beast. There was a little head. asterisk in my head about this game, and it was about that moment. And in that moment, like we we're talking about agency and all that stuff, I felt real mad because I was like, well, then you didn't really let me do what I wanted to do. You know what I mean? Like, I'm mad that this is happening. You've elicited a reaction from me. I'm obviously fucking pissed, right? <laughs> but because I am. You're not going to let me even do what I really want to do. And so, I don't know, there's always that kind of like in between, you want to tell a narrative, and we were kind of alluding to this earlier, you want to tell a narrative, if you're a developer, if you're a developers, you're also a storyteller, right? And you guys are, guys and girls are making something to explain a story, and there's, it's just a tricky little back and forth, because you want to tell your story, but you want the person to feel like they have some agency. And that mixture is there, but... I think they're doing it a lot more nowadays with some of the more modern games, but that was the part where I felt like, oh, come on. Yeah. It feels like that's the trade-off that you get a lot that separates when you play Dungeons & Dragons between a good dungeon master and a bad dungeon master, mm. that this person comes up and they've got this story that they want to pull you into, and they have their story moments, and what ends up happening is this person comes in and starts making choices that fuck up your story moments, Yeah, and you want to still have them regardless. That's why... You have all of these choices that aren't really choices in Bioshock Infinite. And at first, I got really pissed by it because there's the other moment where 
you you rescue slash kidnap Elizabeth from the tower, and this person walks up and offers you a a, a pendant mm, that yeah, Elizabeth yeah. has. She doesn't know which one to choose. One is a cage, the other one is a free bird, and you think this has some sort of thematic significance <laughs> to the rest of the story about whether you're a good guy or a bad guy, and it just builds it up like this is important, this is important, choose well. And you choose one, and it has no fucking has impact. has no importance yeah. at all. It's at just all. aesthetic for the rest of the game. Actually, that's an interesting point about the choices that you think are going to have implications that you won't. For some reason, I thought that Bioshock Infinite had a ton of alternate endings. So when I played it, I really like labored over every moral decision. I had yeah. moments where I accidentally like killed a bunch of civilians, and I felt really bad about that. I was like, no, I want the good guy ending. And then in the end, it's there's little... Changes lines of dialogue here and there from some of the things that but you do. But there's one big ass ending, and it's mm-hmm. yeah, and it's pretty great, by the way. Yeah, I think that I was, love that ending. I think that's the point of the game. I think the point of the game is that it again the illusions of agency taken to this nth degree. Well, yeah, uh, we're spoiling all this, right? Yeah, let's continue forward. So you meet uh, the girl who you were supposed to rescue slash kidnap slash whatever. Uh, she's Elizabeth, and she is a prodigy that can open tears in other realities. And you promise her that you're going to leave with her and take her to where she wants to do, but in reality, you are going to send her off to nef- nefarious peoples. And then you find out that she, not unlike the original character in Bioshock, was just a genetic experiment um, that was that they was discovered that they were trying to control. Um, and you pulling her away from the city causes the downfall of the city. Um, and through through this, you start seeing, you start opening these tears, and you start changing the way reality works. The, in fact, the course of the the game changes drastically, where you choose to step through a, chair, a tear permanently, and then you've refactored the entire world, and you're in a different universe. And by the end, you have a confrontation with Comstock, who is the you you beat his uh, his monsters and his armies, and you come to the end and find out that. Um, you are Comstock. That he's another alternate universe yes. version of you. Right. Yes. So and then again, back to the thing of all the choices really lead to one choice. Right. And, and it, it's a choice that you can't even make. You can't make. It's a yeah. choice that's been made by the universe for you. And Elizabeth, who as the, I guess you could say there's these controls that are put over her powers. And because she starts out as just a straight out like Disney princess. Yes. Who just, she lives in a tower and she just dreams of a world with something more. But she turns into essentially Dr. Manhattan from Watchmen, <laughs> yes. where she's so powerful that she actually has no agency herself because, again, like Dr. Manhattan says, she just becomes a puppet who is capable of seeing the strings. And she finds things for you all the time. Yeah. She's like, here, take this. Here, yeah. take this. Okay, yes. I wasn't even asking for anything. That was touted as sort of one of the – so Elizabeth is the is the big thing feature of, of Infinite, and they, they the press for it. They spend a lot of time talking about how uh, that she's interesting, but really she's there to help sort of further the exposition, right? She's like a living game genie. She's it's, constantly yeah. giving you things. Yeah, she just gives you a lot she's, of coins. She's finding finding you the ammunition and the coins and the stuff that you would normally find in yourself, but she generally does it right at the right moment. You know when you really really need it. It's, you know what? You know I could use uh, I could use her to open up a freaking time portal or something reality thing and just take out some of these bad guys. Yes, exactly. She Help me out. Yeah, she doesn't do any fighting. No, right? yeah. it's. Kind kind of weird because it feels like it's this repudiation of the most hated thing in video games which is the escort mission. 
action. Right, right. Where your job is to lead this person from point A to point B without them getting killed. Actually, the most annoying part of the original Bioshock game. Where you're just like, oh, come on. Can you just hurry up? You can't move as fast as me. But she's weak and you can't help me. But she's okay, though. You don't have to, like, worry about her. She's basically invincible. She's functionally invincible. And she helps you. She makes the game easier, which makes you not hate her. Because it felt like someone was like, you know, escort missions don't have to be shit. So difficulty, interesting that you bring that up. This This can be a criticism across the entire Bioshock series. And maybe this was a result of the fact that if you ever play System Shock 2, it's insanely difficult. Mm-hmm. You, I never had a full life bar for the entire game. <laughs> like, yeah. that's how difficult of a game yeah. it is. But difficulty, um, I would say they suffer from the fact that the Vita, cham- Vita Chambers and, you know, like Elizabeth being there, they essentially make it so there's no death penalty in any of these games. Um, and that feels like maybe it's a concession for taking a game that sh- is like only for hardcore players and making it more accessible to we a broader talk audience. talk about what the Vita Chamber is a little bit. Oh, it's yeah. essentially a giant Tesla coil type. You know this thing? It's, actually, a, res- it's a resurrection machine. Yeah, you yeah. know like yeah. when you go to, uh, <laughs> what is that, Hot Topic and or um, or Spencer's and they have that little electro ball thing. That you <laughs> it's one of those except it's a tube. And essentially, if you die at any point in the game, you go back to that tube. You don't go back to the save point where you first saw that tube. You go back in your exact thing, uh, exact place in the game. Everything is exactly as you left it. So if you're fighting a big daddy and big daddy kills you, you come back to life near that thing and you run back and there's a damaged big daddy and you just keep hitting it until you eventually win. Right. He can kill you three times. You just have to keep running back from the tube. Right, right. And so, I mean, the way that this affects the game is that the, the, there's no death penalty in the way that you'd have another game and you'd say, oh, damn, I've got, I have to go back to the last save point or I have to restart the level. It doesn't happen that way. And, and it makes the game, it makes the game relatively easy. Like, I don't, I don't feel very frustrated when I play a Bioshock game because there really isn't all that much of a consequence to well, dying. Well, I'll tell you one thing I'm frustrated. And again, I don't know. The highs and lows at the end of this, I forget. Yeah, at the very oh, end. I'm going to another low. I'm, but, I mean, I'm, I'm shucking the well, tank. Well, let's, well, yeah, you're shucking the, the tank. Let's talk about the, is, does the lack of difficult, of real difficulty in these games hinder it or, uh, or affect its replayability, do you think? I don't think so. What, what do you think? Well, as, as, at least as far as infinite, uh, if you choose the harder difficulties, it, uh, there is penalty. I mean, it costs you financially, which is your ability to unlock new powers and upgrade your weapons. Right. And if you play in the hardest difficulty, which is called 1999 mode, which is a reference to the release date of System Shock 2, nice. Uh, then it costs you a lot of money if you die, and if you don't have the money to pay for it, then it is game over. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's. I did, on my first playthrough of Infinite, I did it on normal difficulty, which might have been a mistake. It did feel too easy. Um, but if you want to ramp it up, you you can, and I think that it, it does reward that. Maybe I'm really old, <laughs> which is, <laughs> yes, also true, but I feel like near the end of Bioshock Infinite, there was like a, all these waves and waves of enemies, and I was just tired of it. I was happy I was on normal. So hmm. for the most part, I think three quarters of the game, I felt like it was pretty good and easy, and also, like like you alluded to in the very beginning, I play a lot of games for a lot of reasons not just for fun and for the podcast everyone's just it's stuff that i work on and so if i'm trying to get through something i'm really happy because w- i want to know about the story and i want to know about this ending that everybody's talking about mm-hmm. i kind of have to know about the ending so lots of times i'll put it on normal and just be fine with that yeah. so i yeah. thought it was and one i think the one the pacing was so slow and exploratory and then all of a sudden these moments of combat that i that i just never felt like it was too difficult because i had these moments where i could look around a lot and then, okay, now uh-huh. here's a section where I have to fight. 
the thing with difficulty that I've really gotten is that you mentioned this before, Casey, games that you start out incredibly weak and you gradually turn into like a juggernaut. And that's pretty much every game that allows you to build a character these days. Only Mario is just as in, you know powerful as he is. He just has different options of power-ups as the game goes on. But he can still jump on things. <laughs> and the game still allows you to be able to go through his tiny little Mario and still beat the level. It doesn't become impossible. So a lot of times when I play a game like, say, the first time I played Skyrim, hmm. in that, I start out, the world feels huge. And you're afraid of everything. I'm running away from fucking wolves in Fallout 3. I'm running away from giant ants. I don't know what I can kill. I don't know how powerful I am. I don't know what I can do. But by the end of those games, I am essentially Arnold Schwarzenegger as the Terminator walking through the police station, just gingerly blowing people away. <laughs> they can hit me a couple times. I don't care. Just bam. Oh, there you are. Bam. You're dead. Bam. You're dead. And I can take my time because I'm in no real danger and because I'm a world destroyer at that point. Right. The thing that I think makes uh, the Bioshock really powerful is I remember the first time I played it where I had that sense of fear about the world because it is a horror game. You forget yeah. that in retrospect, but you play it and you're like, well, holy shit, this is fucking spooky. And I remember my first time playing it, I am hiding in a bathroom stall from a splicer that I hear coming down the hallway singing a little song to himself. And I'm like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. I just have a wrench. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. And in most games, I know five hours later, I'm like, da da da, bam, da da da, bam, you're dead. And yeah. it means nothing. The, the game, even though my brain knows I'm that powerful later on, it has this weird trick that it manages to make me not feel safe, hmm. even though my left brain totally knows I am. Right. And it has just enough of that doubt there and the ambiance to make me scared. Hmm. And I would say that's an RPG quality, right? So yeah. again, it's very much every RPG you play. You yeah. just like, okay, I have a dagger. It's not going to do anything. Uh, and I'm, right. just, I'm scared of everything. Even that right. little jelly uh, enemy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm afraid of him. Well, you just touched on it. I think I'm going to open the biggest can of worms that Bioshock Infinite ran to. Not so much Bioshock, Bioshock Infinite. And that is the uh that is violence. So I would say that the if as I was sort of surveying, remembering what it was like when it came out and as I was surveying a lot of the press that came around for uh Infinite is that most people felt like the violence was out of step with the sort of lofty the lofty, high-minded narrative that they were trying to create. And I think I want to just dial it back for uh, for people who are maybe not so familiar with video games. Um, the earliest types of video games, because of the simplicity, you had to sort of have... You could, there are only very few interactions that you could simulate in a video game. You know, like collecting or dodging or shooting. If you think about just pixels, dots on the screen. Um, so sort of the... The efficacy of those types of simple actions, shooting being one of them, was necessary because the medium was so simple, right? Because it was such a simple ex simulation. Then as they get more, as video games get more developed, um, you start to find out that they have a target audience that's the same as like a masculine movie, like as a as a, a boy's movie, essentially. And like that's, fried green tomatoes. Well, yeah, <laughs> yes. Pac-Man being a notable exception to that rule because it was about eating. Yeah. Um, so video games tend to start to correspond to to male male j j what am i trying to say masculine masculine or or male directed sort of fantasies and the general consensus is that nowadays is that video games aren't like murder simulators right like people blow off steam people don't become killers because they play that but violence is is the way i look at violence now is that 
if violence is not necessary, why is it being used? And I think that was the big question that they said about Infinite. That scene that we were talking about, the raffle scene, um, mm. you get caught in the middle of it by security guards, by policemen, essentially. And your way that you have no control over is to take a spinning buzzsaw-like hook and tear the guy's face off right in front of you, full center. And then, of course, that that's just the beginning of it. I mean, it goes over and over. You're killing everyone. You're killing the revolutionaries. You're killing the police. Sometimes you're killing civilians. Uh, you're killing people left and right. And, um, you know, for... Uh, a game that wanted to be so much more than everyone thought it could be. I, I also felt that, uh, that the violence did not serve uh, the game well, but it wouldn't have been much of a game. if It didn't have that traditional first person shooter violence to it. I think I have an answer. And I think it's kind of what I've been saying the whole time. It's just timing again. So right now to jump forward, there's an, a new like indie RPG that's like Earth, uh, Earthbound where you don't have to fight anything, but it's a turn-based RPG, and you talk your way out of uh, all the different fights. You can do that. Or you can like uh, let people go, and then you get experience points for letting them go. There's um, – the, what's it? The, oh, my goodness. I can't think of it. The one about the Portland, the girls in Portland. Um, choose your own adventure. Anyways, there's so many games now that allow you to – literally not have to do that cutting the face off thing. And I think at that point, again, maybe they didn't have the right mechanic, game mechanic, to do the things they wanted to. Or or maybe they were just tied into that genre. They were linked to it. I mean, I don't have a, I honestly don't have a problem with violence in video games. I just, I believe that it, I think... That I don't think it serves the story as well as the setting of Bioshock One served the story. As right, far as right, all the, right. the the corpses and corpses and corpses that you have to wade through. Well, in Bioshock One, you're also fighting junkies that are basically mentally broken, right? And don't give you any chance to talk to them because they're not people. But the people you're fighting in Bioshock Infinite are oftentimes just random police officers. They who have aren't. families. Yeah, yeah. Yes. they're not crazy. They're people. Um, I mean, the people in in Bioshock are people too, but they're so broken that you wonder if there's any path back and they don't give you a lot of chance or choice to back away from a violent solution. And I think it may be just a symptom of something that we're seeing in video games. You now the technology is getting better and better. That's what I'm saying. Is that you get more choices. Mm-hmm. It's not just that I can choose between killing a big daddy with a, with a trap or killing a big daddy with direct violence or killing a big daddy through stealth. What if there were an option, even if it were hard, to be able to non-violently rescue the little sister. Right. Yep. The pacifist run. As it's yep. And the pacifist run is exactly what I'm talking about because we're seeing this growing number of people on YouTube doing runs of things like, say, Skyrim, where they decide to play a non-violent pacifist character. And there are limitations to what you can do because some of the quests, I'd say maybe even most of the quests in the game, require a violent solution to at least one problem in that quest. But people are managing to sneak through and finding go-arounds. And I think maybe the fact that there's this growing desire for this kind of playthrough, because again, it's also a challenge. And I think the challenge is the thing we're talking about again, that is a game hard enough? And sometimes being nonviolent is a thing that gives you that challenge, because it's Mm -hmm. easy late stage in a game to just fight your way through. It's hard to sneak your way through and not use violence. Right. And even the end of uh, Fallout New Vegas actually lets you defeat the last boss with speech. Right. So maybe right. that's the direction video gaming is going, is that violence is something you can do, but not something you must do. Mm-hmm. I, I think that they maybe wanted to give you more options than just blowing your way through everything. There's this one line, and maybe I misunderstood its intention, but early in the game... There's uh, some police come to the door uh, of, of these people, and they're like, quick, hide. 
And the game suggests that don't always shoot first. There might be another answer. Mm-hmm. But then there really isn't. I mean, yeah. you just yeah. you still have to. Yeah. You go out the door, and the police are. You can't really stealth past them very well, and they. You end up in that fight that you're trying to avoid at the beginning, and so. It seems to be suggesting that they they wanted to create that that sort of possibility, but uh, maybe they just didn't know how. Well, and you, as you know, uh, a lot of development stuff gets lost in development, right? So I know a lot of indie game developers, and they work on stuff, and they have lofty goals, and then there's time crunches, and there's release dates, and you just don't get to it. So sometimes maybe that was a little bit of an illusion of what they were going to do, uh, and then they just couldn't do it. So yeah, and I think back to Casio's earlier point, like it's definitely the setting too. I think maybe the press got a little freaked out. Because because it was this clear and colorful world where these people had families, and the other one was like this dark world where, like, okay, everybody's already pretty much dead, yeah. so we should just probably keep killing things. And yeah. like you, like you said, these guys are attacking me in Bioshock One, right. like almost all the time. There's nobody like friendly coming over and say, "Hey, do you want to talk for a minute?" No, it's like, yeah, you, you never get to interact with a person that you don't have to kill. Basically, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. People are behind glasses or over a radio. That's like. That's one of my low points. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll save it. Save no, your big one. I know. I have all my low points. They're already released. <laughs> well, the one thing that we haven't really talked about is the is the the auteur behind the Bioshock series, and we we discount too because it's not created by them. Which is a guy by the name of Ken Levine, who is now now revered. He's a known name among game designers. And we on our Nintendo podcast we talked about how. Miyamoto is kind of like the Rod Serling of game designers because he's the one guy in that doing that job whose name you know. Otherwise, who's who's what screenwriter names do you ever remember? Mm-hmm. Um, Ken Levine is now a known name, and uh, he has very actual few other than Bioshock. He has very few games to his credit, um, and he's now uh, he's now a big deal. Like I think he's he's now writing the Logan's Run remake movie. I did not know that. That gets me very excited. Yes, um, and I want uh, if you guys can can any of you guys point out like a Ken Levine flavor. Um, from what you know of his uh, of his games and the worlds that he creates, his, I can his just, world building. I can speak only from uh, the Bioshock series, but uh, I think it's a game that's about an idea that it has goals bigger than just being a challenge or a beautiful set of graphics or good gameplay. Which is really to be a successful game, you need all those things. And he's like, well, no, it doesn't have to be just that. Hmm. Um, I think that you explore a place. And this place is practically a character, if not the character that you interact with throughout the course of this game. Like, the Splicers are not people in that thing. They, you get the sense that they once were people. And in their babblings, you get the threads, the threadbare idea of who this person might have been sometime in the past. But Rapture is the thing, the living thing, even if it's, you know, on its last legs, that you interact with. And I think in all of his games, you get the sense of, the setting as character, the setting as a mm. place, the setting as an environment that makes you and invites you to want to learn more about it. Hmm. Yeah. And I would say that he has, like you said, lofty goals and almost like a Peter Molyneux, but I know for better or worse, sometimes Peter Molyneux. Right. But the idea that like, let's try to go for this crazy idea. Let's go for this high scope or high you know, idea about the game. And that's what's great about him. He tries for that. Unfortunately, Irrational Games is no more. Right. And he's going to be doing his own thing, yeah, which is I, great. But I, I, I might have actually even picked this as a low point, but it, it wasn't actually my low point is that after, and this is not uncommon for AAA studios, is that when uh, AAA gaming, meaning high budget, very large releases for video games um, that now sometimes have the budgets in the tens of millions of dollars, um, he basically just disbanded his entire studio that had been 
around for more than a decade after this is done. Now, this is something that does end up happening in the ga- in game dev industry. You'll work on a game for two year, three years, or something, and then you'll get you'll get laid off. Basically, you don't have a job anymore after the game is shipped. Um, he was someone who was kind of a poster child, I guess, for good for uh, for good games like a, a, for high concept developers. And he just decided, oh, I'm going to kill this studio and go off and make my own small studio that's there. And I think he there was a little bit of uh, gnashing of the teeth about this because he burned down his forest rather he, than he did burn he did burn <laughs> down his forest a little bit. I mean, it does it does suck when you consider. I talked about this a little bit on the Lucas podcast where you've got this auteur, the director, in this case, the designer of a video game. And then you have all of the artists, all of the people that are working on it, and uh, they don't get any of the credit. Right. And when someone does want to burn down the forest like that, you don't you you get a spot on your resume. But, uh oh, I got to find another job. And it's a shame because I think Bioshock was finally becoming exactly the thing it should be, which is it's an umbrella title. Like the Final Fantasy series is before I don't want to get me started on where it's gone down the tubes, but <laughs> it's a series where it's about a lofty idea and it's about an interesting city that's built around that idea and you get thrown into it and chaos ensues. And you can do that with an infinite amount of ideas. You can do that with an infinite amount of settings and characters that I have a gun and I have superpowers. And that is the only thing connecting it. Kind of like Final Fantasy. Every time a new game comes out, until recently, there are only fucking sequels. Um, it's a different world. I mean, there's these connecting themes like airships and chocobos and all that stuff. But that's just kind of thrown in there as sort of the connecting tissue. Everything else is new and you're introduced to everything, you know, completely different with a lot of similarities thematically. And I was hoping right. we were going to get a third uh, Bioshock game with a completely different setting again. And it's just kind of sad to learn that we're not going to get that. Well, let, let me let me uh, defend Ken, I think. Maybe I'm not sure. But I know that like when um, Casey was mentioning, when you get into these hundreds of millions of dollars budgets, when it gets so big, you have return on investment, right? So it becomes a straight up business. And there's a lot of people to get paid and a lot of pe- people get repaid a percentage that they want more on their investment. And so when you have this huge team that Irrational becomes – then maybe you make that next Bioshock game and you're worried as an auteur that it's going to compromise what you really want to do. And I think that unfortunately, lots of times, and and fortunately for a lot of my friends who are indie game developers, you have to do it smaller to do exactly how you want to do it. The minute you start adding money, any huge business, then you get that weird kind of a bunch of voices in your head and going like, hey, well, we need to make this money. And then... I mean, yeah, people lose their jobs and it sucks. I mean, but. I I think other than that, I I'd say personally there were consequences of it also being a big game and needing to be a big game. I uh, I don't know if any of you are familiar with the cover art controversy. I yes. don't think I yes. am. I forgot it. So br- briefly, uh, if you may recall, the uh, image, the cover image for the original Bioshock, I think, is a big daddy. It's a big daddy standing in a hallway in Rapture, which. If you have no idea, if you've if you've never seen the game before, you're like, what the fuck? How what is this game? How would I even know? You wouldn't know by looking at it. Playing it now, you're like, oh cool, it's a big daddy. Now we know. Um, apparently, 2K, which was the publisher who was there, was unhappy with this with the relatively low amount of sales. I don't know how four million units could be bad, but it is bad if you're a very very large company. There was pressure upon release of Infinite to uh, release a cover that if someone's grandmother was shopping for their teenage son they would be able to know what kind of game it was. So that's why the cover of Bioshock Infinite has Booker holding a shotgun. Because yeah. that's like a shooter game, right? 
a guy with with a, a white guy with dark hair holding a gun, looking down, L- looking down. Yes. yes, and there you get to that compromise. You know, there there becomes the the issues. So, and I even remember hearing uh, Ken Levine talk about things like focus testing in fraternities on colleges, and and this part to me, this this symbol this symbolizes that the problems that I have with Infinite is that Infinite feels more like interactive fiction than it does a video game it's it leads to, to less actual playing and more i'm waiting for this ridiculous cutscene to finish before i can start playing because it needed to be this big tentpole film-like experience and have less actual interesting gameplay nestled in it and so for that for me as as impressive as what it is it is less of a game to me yeah, and that might be again like the 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 beginning of the end is is that game because of those reasons, right? Right. He's he's changing it to be that when, instead of this kind of fun exploratory world that Bioshock One was. I think. Yeah. Is it the trade off? I mean, we've seen the alternate to that. I think in Fallout Three, and it was only through watching a lot of playthroughs of people playing Fallout Three differently than me, like playing a run where. This guy's going through and literally trying to kill every single human being in the game and being the sort of evil character that I never want to be. And what really struck me was how much it changed the game, that there are certain characters that are invincible until you finish their missions, and now they're vulnerable. And they have a place in the world biosphere, and when they die, it has to change. It has to become something else. Like the character of Three Dog in Fallout 3 is the DJ on the radio station you listen to over and over. You can kill him. What happens when you kill him? You get a different DJ yep. who's an old lady who doesn't want to be a DJ, and she's just like, well, you know, Three Dog would probably say something clever, but some asshole killed him. <laughs> Although, weirdly enough, I heard he's back in four, which doesn't make any sense if oh. you killed him in three. Yeah, well, so, but anyways. I love that sort of thing. Yeah, it's yeah. the game, like we said, the ability of to be able to tell a story yep. and give the character, the player, yep. not just the character, but the player, agency to work within that story to actually affect the world and the outcome of the game. Just because, and I know we could talk about Fallout forever, or at least I could, but just real quick, that great uh, point, in, like I think it was Fallout 1 or 2, which was like a top-down like uh, style game, uh, third-person miniature little guy. Is- isometric. Isometric is the word I was looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a big mafia gangster guy at some point, and if you kill him, then a whole mission is gone. You know, but in the beginning, you're like, well, I could probably work for this guy, but he starts being a real asshole. And you're like, well, I'm just going to kill him. So you do. And then you lose a whole whole chunk. Yeah. This this game is not that game. This game is like kill a bunch of things and then find out what this ending is that we want to tell you. Right. And um, yeah, that's why I've always liked Bioshock 1 better. I will Hmm. mention this real quick. Hmm. The music, again, back to music. Oh, yes. The fun music in Infinite is really great. It's Oh, yeah. Because you have realities basically mixing Seems like uh, different alternate realities are kind of mixing. So you have this, was it, Barbershop Quartet singing modern songs? It's uh, God Only Knows by the Beach Boys. Right. And then you have a Cyndi Lauper song, I think, Time After Time. Girls just want to have fun. fun. And it's done on a calliope at a carnival. Oh, it's so beautiful. So that stuff was really done well. A lot of cool anachronisms. I I love that, and I love the reference. I'm sorry, go ahead, Patrick. I was going to say, just to ground why that is permissible, uh, I think there's, I, I read this on the wiki, I think there's probably an audio tape that I didn't find. Fink is apparently going around with crews of people trying to find rifts and tears so that it can steal cultural elements and inventions. For, for it, like, for the monetary value. Yeah. Yeah, 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 to be popular. No, That's why they have a flying city, because they were able to pull into other dimensions and find the technology somewhere in the multiverse that would do all these different things. And it's also uh, a lot of the cross, and a lot of the things that are the same or, or similar related to the first Bioshock are explained as that they had a rift into mm. that world. So, uh, for example, the the Foreman characters in, in Finkton, which are sort of like 
part man, part machine, are I think supposed to be uh, based on Big Daddies. They are. In oh, fact, okay. if you play yeah. the Burial at Sea, they have a long part where they really belabored the point. We should we should we should probably end the main discussion talking about Burial at Sea. But Burial at Sea was the add-on DLC where you take the Booker and Elizabeth characters back into Rapture before the Civil War, and you you guide yourself through the city as it basically the war starts to be set off between Fontaine and or between Fontaine and and Andrew Ryan. Um, but you learn so Doctor Sutrong is the mad scientist. Um, is the mad scientist in the original Bioshock? You learn that Doctor Suchong and Doctor Fink are are working together through, like, through interdimensionally and sharing technology with one another, and that's why you have similarities between Songbird looks kind of like a big daddy, mm. for example. So, um, but I don't know, did any of you guys play through and uh, finish Burial Sea? Did no, anyone here? I haven't. Uh, oh my god! Okay, yeah, we all haven't. So it ends with. Elizabeth, who wants to protect a child, it's about a, a child that's in danger, a, a girl that's in danger, just like Infinite is. Um, she ends up making a deal with Fontaine at the end to save this child, um, and that uh, the, at what happens at the end is she gives Fontaine the activation code, would you kindly, um, so that Fontaine can begin the war. But the problem with this is, is that it does, you understand by the ending of Bioshock Infinite that the worlds of Rapture and the worlds of Columbia are two uh, versions of this of two different dimensions of the same world. There's always a lighthouse. There's always a man. There's always a lighthouse. There's always a city. This is a, the text that's in the end. So you you under you already understand this by the original ending of the game, and and these connections you can draw yourself. You can use your brain to mm. oh yeah we can speculate about it there. Yeah. They spend in t- too much time allowing you to walk through laboratories where they spell out the relationship between Infinite and the original Bioshock again and again and again. And then to f- and then the very last scene of the, of, uh, the Barrel at Sea DLC is um, Jack, the, the uh, character from the first game, standing up on the plane and grabbing a gun. Okay. All right. I, All right. I don't, I don't need, need to play it. that. I don't, I don't need to play that. Wait, yeah. I didn't need to see that. Yeah, I, under- yeah. I understood the connection in my brain before I'd actually played it. And I think that while it was fun to revisit it and to have some fun little other like flavor to the original Bioshock game for Rapture, um, it didn't need to happen for me. You know what I've heard that referred to as? Continuity porn. (laughs) 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 And this maybe has something to do with how fandom has evolved and what fans demand from the things that they enjoy now in a way that they didn't in the past, which is, do we really need a fucking explanation for every little quirk and whatever? A good example was uh, Jeff Johns, who's a comic book writer, did a story about The Flash that was about his origins uh, like in 2000 and – oh, God, I mean 2010 – And the thing with Barry Allen in the comics is that he always wore a bow tie. And the thing with a bow tie is they're not as cool as they used to be. (laughs) Or maybe they've come back. (laughs) And um, they had in the storyline an explanation for why Barry Allen wore a bow tie. Hmm. And then you look at Doctor Who and Matt Smith just goes, bow ties are cool. Isn't that enough? Isn't it enough right. that this is just a quirk of a character? Do we have to have everything have some elaborate origin story? Yeah. And does everything have to be connected? Do we Are we not allowed to have little spaces of things I don't know where I'm allowed to inject my own speculation? Do I have to know everything? I don't want to say this is the answer, but I'm afraid it is, and it has to do with money. Because maybe if there's a fan out there, like you just said, that wants that stuff, and they're going to somehow yeah. pay for a new... DLC or a new comic series, then maybe, you know, that's, maybe that's why they make it because they're going to sell it somewhere. I mean, you had to do something for, for those, uh, you know, after Infinite is sort of a definitive end, right? You can't continue in that 
in that storyline. Right. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So you have, to, you, have to, you have to pick up somewhere, but you still want to tie it to the original creation. So what do you what do you talk about? But do you have to, or is that again well, monetarily? Yeah. Well, listen. Okay, we didn't meet our goal for bon- Infinite. So what can we do to pa- pad this number? And uh, the well, pad that number is DLC. They were always going to plan on DLC because that was part of it being a AAA release. In any event, one mm. last thought. One last thought. Um, is it is Bioshock a middling video game with a great story, or is it a great video game with a fantastic story? Interesting. I feel like I don't have enough choice in that answer. <laughs> Can either I have a third choice? Either way, somebody's going to grab your wrist and, and it's going to start me. a fight. Yeah, yes. yeah. I won't be able to hit who I want with the baseball. Patrick. Uh so going back to going back to the original Bioshock, it's it's hard to, in replaying it. Uh, some of the gameplay elements didn't hold up as as well as I remembered them. Hmm. Uh, there were some things that felt clunky, and it, it's hard to know now how much of that is the the time that's elapsed, and and how much of it is that it wasn't amazing uh, e- even even then. Uh, I think it was the things that set it apart were not the smooth gameplay elements. Uh, you know the mechanics were solid, but that wasn't what was extraordinary about it. It was right. always the world building. It was always the the concept. Mike, I think it held up absolutely. Mm. I played the game, and I looked at the you know the dates on my achievements for playing this game. I hadn't <laughs> played it in three years. Wow! And even when I played it the first time, it was a couple years old. So this is a game 2007. This is like an eight year old game, and graphics have gotten better we're in a whole new generation of video game consoles now yep so we have a much greater expectation and i guess if you're going to draw a through line you can say the same thing happens with blockbuster movies that a movie feels like it's incredible and it's only through the passage of time that you can revisit it when the spectacle of the visuals and the special effects uh wear off and the thing actually has to stand on its actual merits that i can Mm. watch a sci-fi movie from the 1950s, and it can either be a total mess or it can be a classic. And I think Bioshock is absolutely a classic. Okay. It held up absolutely. Nice. Carlos? I'm thinking a third option. I'm going to say it's an amazing setting with a pretty good game mechanic. Okay. Um, I think the setting is way, what... Way to dodge the question, Yeah, Carlos. yeah, yeah. You have a good That's career in politics, Yes, sir. thank you. And uh, <laughs> for my next trick. Um, no, I think the setting was amazing, and that really what, what still, when I go back to it, is what I like. Uh, I think the me- game mechanic, again, when you go back, it's like, yeah, yeah, it works. And I think there's some choice there. I can electrocute the water. That's kind of cool, <laughs> and I can do that. Uh, but I can't step in the water. Be careful. Um, oh. But the setting always makes me want to play it again, kind of go back and live in that world. Fascinating. So my answer is amazing setting. Okay, awesome. All right, uh, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back with High Point, Low Point. Welcome back to the show. This is the segment we like to call High Point, Low Point. It's where we go to the top of the mountain, the bottom of the barrel. I'm going to start with you, Patrick. What was your low point for the Bioshock series? So maybe it was the difficulty that I played Infinite on, but I, and I, had, I had this experience to some extent. You talked about uh, settling into a strategy, and I found that there were these fights that were staged in such a way that there were rails overhead, and there's all these environmental things that you could use. But sooner or later, I just stand in a corner, and anybody who comes at me, I just send <laughs> birds at them. And then when they die, they become a bird bomb. It creates more birds, and I just shoot everybody. And it, the only reason that I would switch plasmids or you know pow- switch powers was to keep it interesting. The reason that I would switch guns was just because I was bored with the way that I was playing the game, hmm. and I, I wanted it to with you know a game that gives you 
these different tools, I wanted it to encourage their use a little bit more. I wanted it to, to open it up and reward uh, you know that experimentation instead of finding just a solid strategy that you can just spam over and over again to success. Right. Uh, that and uh, Impossible Hacks, I think, in, in the original Bioshock. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, the mini game with oh, the I pipes? Love, yeah, I love the Pipe Dreams uh, mini game. Yeah. Although uh, that was the one, uh, really the one improvement that I think Bioshock 2 did. I liked the needle game more than I liked the pipe game. Oh, Because you didn't have to spend so much goddamn time on hacking. It felt like you were playing a really hard putative version of a screensaver. <laughs> yeah. Didn't you just, like, can you just spend like some sort of points or something and just win the games right you could buy them out buy them out or you could get auto hack so in, near the end of the game you generally like you're just you have all the inventory you want to and so mom was like yeah auto-hack, auto-hack, i auto-hack. was auto hacking everything yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. anyway you're really tired of it by that anyway oh yeah uh but I, but I do get that um the idea that you find a thing that just is so effective that with all these choices no other choice really makes sense and there's actually a segment of the first game where Fontaine is actually messing with your head and messing with your DNA. And every time you finish a segment of the level, it switches up the only plasmid you can use. And I found that so refreshing. It's so weird. I was so good at using the, my own choice. But suddenly I'm forced to use the plasmas, plasmid that I never use as mm-hmm. my only option. I'm like, oh, hey, I didn't know you could do that. Yeah, I think in the first game I ended up using a lot more. And like you said, in the, in the Infinite, I found a strategy that I liked. But the first one, I felt like I wanted to or had to. And there were also some puzzles in the first one. You had to unlock areas using the, the fire to melt ice. Yeah. Or, whereas yeah. in Infinite, you get Shock Jockey, which you can use to activate those uh, that, that sort of... Uh, Generator, or yeah, exactly, it is. which starts things up. Yeah. I was like, "Oh, that's going to be a mechanic that I use to like open up new areas." They and never it use yeah, it. No. They use it for one segment and mm. they ignore it. Yeah, I think the I think the sort of mixing and matching of plasmids and the, the tonics, which are basically like these stat boosts, the specific things, were a lot fresher in Bioshock, and there was a, you had a lot more uh, you had a lot more you could do a lot more experimentation, um, and uh, and it's far more replayable. I found Infinite to be not as replayable for, for that reason entirely. Once once I'd gone through it and understood what it was and done the story, I was like, oh, I'm not as interested. So, uh, Well, let's go to you, Mike. What was your low point for Bioshock? Well, I'm going to cheat a little bit. Um, I actually have a runner-up, and then I have my real answer. My runner-up is real quick. Bioshock 1 does not have end credits. Oh. And it kind of drove me crazy. I mean, what does end credits do for you in a movie, and what do they do for you in a game? Well, in a game... They allow you to unwind a little bit. They let you sit on the accomplishment. They give you that last emotional note. Um, they allow you to just kind of, uh, mm-hmm. and you kind of hold on the emotion of the end of the game for a little while when you sit there after you just honestly finish something that should be really hard. So it gives you that last moment, like um, Red Dead Redemption mm-hmm. has a really hard finale, and once you get past that really hard finale you sort of sit on that emotion for a while and you have the end credits that go for five minutes and you also get sort of this kind of condensation of all these moments from the game, all these emotions from the game for using the music. And Bioshock has such a strong ending to it. I mean, any of the three endings, but I always do the good guy ending. And it's such a strong note to hold it on. I really just want to see it just slowly fade to black and slowly fade in with the Bobby Darren, you know, Beyond the Sea song, because that's the yeah. one they always used in the trailer. Yeah. If they just did that a little bit, um, you know, I really would have would have had that moment. Instead, it just kind of goes, bam, oh, I'm on the title screen again. I mm. forgot that it did that. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, I didn't know that. I forgot that. It was just a little too jarring. Okay. But uh, my real answer, the illusion of moral choices and the limits of video games. Yeah. Um, the big part of it is that they always treat every moral question in the Bioshock series as a black and white binary. That it's either spare the little sister, cure the little sister. Uh, I get that one. Because, one, you're ripping a little child's you know stomach out and pulling a worm out and then consuming it. That's like fucking, you know, like monster shit. That's the stuff. That's like a Mortal Kombat fatality. <laughs> and you're doing it to a child. Uh, so you are a bad person yes. if you do that. Yes. But you mentioned before that Bioshock 2 also adds this question of whether to kill or spare a group of characters. There's three instances in the game where there is a character who gets in the way of your progress either through a misunderstanding or they're being manipulated or used or they're just angry at the world and then you just happen to be this thing they're taking it out on. And the first one, I actually really, really felt bad for Grace Holloway, who was the yeah, first character. Me too. So sparing her was super easy for me because I'm like, this person's a victim. This person has been used and this person's in a lot of pain and I can't add to that. I'm not going to kill this person. I don't want revenge against her. And the second one is a little bit harder because the guy was a piece of shit. But then the third one is where I think the game really comes off the wheels. And that's the character of Gil Alexander. So Gil Alexander is this scientist who's gone absolutely crazy. He's gone all Tetsuo where he's turning in this <laughs> monster thing. Big, big blubber man. Yeah, he's yeah. this thing in a tube. He's taken complete mental control over all the machines around you. He's legitimately insane, and he's trying to murder you. Meanwhile, you're trying to take control of the machines in the area around him and cutting his set mental control over everything. And in the cause of that, you are being helped by recordings of who Gil Alexander was before he went crazy, that he's changing, he's morphing, he's terrified of what he's going to become, and he wants you to kill him. He actually asks you, please, please put me out of my misery. I'm in a lot of pain right now, and I can't do this anymore. I don't want to be this thing. And eventually you do cut his control over Rapture, and you're left with this choice about whether you're going to take an extra step further and kill him, or you're going to spare him. You just turn off his control and walk away. And this was an instance in that black and white moral binary where I thought the game was absolutely wrong. The game, to get the achievement and the good guy ending that I wanted, I had to spare him. And I was like, no, this is bullshit. Mm -hmm. It is kinder to kill him. If I was him, I would be begging. He is literally asking you to kill him. And it was, it just, I really hated this moment. I would want the good guy to put me out of my misery, to end my pain, that I'm just going to be not just a monster in a tube hurting people, but a completely impotent, helpless, uh, without agency monster in a tube in pain and crazy and unable to change anything about my environment. That is way worse. Real quick callback, because earlier I was uh, mentioning a game I couldn't think of the name of. It was Life is Strange, uh, these girls in Portland. It's a choose-your-adventure type game. There's a moment in that game, spoiler, Life is Strange, Mark it on your thing. Here it comes. Sure. Um, there's a girl who wants to be put out of her misery, and she's on life support, and you can do that. You can actually make that choice to unplug it, and that gives you the option, right? But it doesn't say, like, if you did that, you don't get the good ending. So I totally agree with you on that. And that was the thing is it it got me to the point 
where I'm, I'm, I'm a fucking achievement whore. I'm just going to put that out there. If there's a thing I can get, where I could get a little prize for accomplishing something, mm-hmm. I'm going to run for that prize. And I want the good guy ending. I want the achievement that says I spared and I'm a good person because the achievement's called savior. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I want to be the good guy. I always aim for the, the maximum positive morality that I'm able to get. And when you're actually going against that, you're making me, instead of making a moral choice, I'm making a selfish choice. I'm doing something for myself rather than for this other person, even if that other person is pixels. And the point where, I mean, that's the point where I become Andrew Ryan. I am acting for completely self-serving reasons to get this achievement, to get the good ending, and I'm leaving this person to this horrible fucking fate. Yeah, fourth wall, like like me as the person achievement. Yeah, not even affecting what the game world cares about, you know? So that's my low that's point. Yeah. It's just, oh my God, the game just getting it wrong. Again, a mortal binary where the game markets itself on shades of gray. Is there mm-hmm. a bad guy achievement as well? Do no, you? I don't think there is. Oh. I think I think it's all just being either a good guy or a monster who gets less <laughs> uh, Xbox achievement points. Because so. I think with the Little Sisters, I think you're rewarded you, if you either kill them or spare them. You want to do that consistently. Yes. Uh, yeah, I did it in between, yeah. and that's not you, the you one you get you an in between ending. There's an in between yes. ending. You're still a bad guy in that in between ending, though. I know <laughs> that's one of my low points. <laughs> uh, Carlos, what's your low point for Bioshock? Well, I have many. Um, actually, you, what is your lowest point? Oh, for I want to Bioshock? mention. I'm going to cheat because he got to cheat. I'm going to do one thing real Mike. quick. Mike, sorry, Mike's I making the, the rules. <laughs> He's changing the agency of yes, the of the is. podcast. He is. Real quick to your point though um, about the credits. Uh, I recently played. Pun intended. Everybody's gone to the rapture. Oh, yeah, yes. there's the pun. Yes, it's a great fun experience. I wouldn't say game, but experience. And the end. I needed those ending credits. I totally hear you. I was like. I need to process this. This is a big like thing that they explained at the end, and you're like, oh, I feel really cool, and I wanted that. So I, I hear you on that. My low points are one, short version, rails and in infinite. You just get stuck on them. Oh. You're like, what? Fuck you. I, don't, I was trying to, but no, going around again. No, don't you mean, no, no, going around again. Get out of here, rails. <laughs> <laughs> but my biggest low point is what we've kind of been talking around the whole time is this in, in one and I think what they wanted to do in the whole series, but I'm specifically talking to one, is this idea that other people are around, like left over from this kind of dead graveyard world. I didn't believe anybody that was was actually there. All the splicers were enemies. They could have been a pink or purple ghost, right? They're monsters. And the people, like you said, Casey, earlier, behind the window, like... I don't even feel like you're a real person. You almost you could be a robot back there. Yeah. Uh from like Disneyland. A recorded message. A recorded message. Yes. So yeah. that's my biggest thing is that they gave me so much to our earlier points of the story, the subjective like this idea, and then there's nobody to flush that out. Hmm. There's no people to explain to me that I'm a person because I'm as a gamer and, and uh, me as the player, first person, I feel real. All my choices feel like I'm making specific choices i'm a person but that's a monster who's attacking me that other thing's a monster in a version you know big daddy the little girls kind of but they're also kind of monsterish because they're not real and they got this whole different setting in their mind right and the people are few and far between and even andrew ryan at the end i don't feel i feel like he's a cut scene he is right? a cut scene so that's well, my biggest yeah. thing with the whole series is that, hmm. and even a little bit infinite, really, because you have these NPCs, you have people in a different kind of more alive world, but I just didn't feel like the people, and that could be the technology, 
But for me, that was my biggest hmm. low point. Okay. You know you can reverse direction on the rails, right? Hit C. <laughs> Shut up. Oh, God. It's like it. battling people on the ski lift. Yeah. yeah. And you're like, I got to kill that guy. I got to kill that guy. Oh, wait, he's going the other way down it's there. Just, and I'm like, fuck, how do I get there? Even with that, it's annoying. Yeah. I got <sighs> lost so much. Yeah. Where am I going? Uh, north? No. <laughs> <laughs> so my low point in, for the Bioshock series was the Dis- Disney princess in Bioshock Infinite. Um and all of the baggage that comes with it. So she, Elizabeth is a game feature that the studio and the, the the publishers touted as the next big thing for this game that made it so unique. Um, and I thought it was novel on my first playthrough, I think. But the more I went through it, the more I realized how distracting what she was uh, to the story and to me playing the game. And how it became downright annoying by the time, like the third third time around. Um Firstly, I think she's not unique. I think she's clearly a derivative of Alex Vance from Half-Life 2. She mm. is a, she is an mm-hmm. Alex Vance. She just has more powers. But she also explained Alex Vance to me. So Al- Alex Vance is a companion character in Half-Life 2. You are also this first-person protagonist who needs some charming, cute girl to be a somewhat pseudo-love interest and also to help fix things for you and, and get things for you and move the plot along, essentially. Um, and th- there is a lot of... Uh, uh, there's a lot of sw- swoon along with Alex Vance because that's what she was created for, right? Um, the relationship between Booker and Elizabeth, although you find out that she's that he is like her father, essentially, right, um, is the lens through which the player unveils the mystery of Columbia, right? This is this relationship helps to exposit the setting. But I got the sense, and it grew more intense that. Uh, they wanted they that the co- emotional connection that the developers and the, the writer and the voice actors were trying to make between me and Elizabeth became a distraction and an annoyance because they want you to fall in love with Elizabeth as the mm. player. And I won't go on too much time about the weird people who fall in love with fictional characters. My low point is not other people are shit. I'm not gonna. <laughs> we're not gonna do that. Uh, I just found the affection just unconvincing and the naive like beautiful little starlet girl charm was at odds with the tone of the of the setting like you have this girl who uh is dancing on battleship bay and and uh wanting to out to see the world and then she's helping you like dismember and disintegrate uh, enemies, right? She's actively throwing you rifles so you can put yeah. bullets through their eyes. Oh, little me? Yeah, exactly. Oh. Yeah, she's a renaissance woman. Sawing, <laughs> sawing a man's face off next to her playful dancing just does not work. It just doesn't work for me. And uh, to use a trope, she's the manic pixie dream girl, right? Um, which I find frustratingly overused and just distracting as hell. Um I mean, if you want to look at a good example of a man and a woman in a video game, the relationship between B.J. Blaskowitz and Anya from last year's Wolfenstein New Order was great. Uh, it was it was a well-developed adult relationship between two physical characters in a hyper-realistic fantasy setting, because that's what it was, that didn't have, like, over-sexualization or making this femme fatale character that often happens. And I felt like Elizabeth wanted, they wanted to sell you as her being some kind of next level, different type of portrayal of a character, but I thought it was cheap. I thought it was an emotional grab and it was a distraction. So for me, low point, Elizabeth as player swoon bait. Yeah, or like Last of Us, right? That's a good example of a a man and a younger girl and their relationship uh, 
moving the story along, but it, it, making sense, you know, and not just like a, yeah, here, catch this, and like getting me stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think overall the concept writing for, for for Infinite at least is better than some of the dialogue writing. There's mm. definitely there's some lines that didn't didn't feel real great to me, but all the all the stuff on the Vox phones and sort of the you know the the setting building is is fantastic, but not always the lines is, is believable for each character. Yeah, 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 and that goes that whole idea of the setting versus the you know right. play by play. Well, let's drag ourselves out of the gutter, gentlemen, uh, and we'll go to the top of the mountain. High point. Let's start with you, Carlos. What's your high point for Bioshock? Um, it's pretty easy. It's a little mixture of two things, but uh, the the lost ending. Kind of lost is pretty much what the first beginning of Bioshock 1 is, where you're literally in a plane and you crash planed, and you're like, what's going on? I just love that concept uh, from a game, and it really makes you feel like, okay, I'm this person, I don't understand what's happening, and it's a cool way to get started. But mainly for me, it's just a dystopia. So I a uh, little fun fact, I took anti-utopian literature in high school. <laughs> wow. That was a <laughs> high option. School. Yeah, high school. There was an elective, and I took it. And I read 1984 and Brave New World and Fahrenheit 451 and a did, ton did, of stuff. Did you read Ayn Rand's Anthem? No, which was an anti-dystopian yeah, I know. novel as well. Uh, I don't yeah. know if I had time for that. We had they were all, those are other ones were all shorter books. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then this thing, the short story called The Machine, which was really great. And and I've always been fascinated by that. So if you say dystopia, anti-utopian, whatever, I'm in. So I really think that the high point for me is just to go into a world like that and to reiterate the setting uh, and learn from these cassette tapes. Like that whole <laughs> anti-utopian dystopian, that's my high point. Okay. Mike, what's your high point? I'm kind of going in the same direction as Carlos here. It's the sense of immersion that you have in this game. Uh, like I mentioned before, hiding in a bathroom stall from an imaginary person who can't hurt me in real life, <laughs> that you pull me into the world that much. The water effects in this place, it feels like a city that is under the ocean, that is broken. Because what does a place under the ocean do when it's broken? It leaks. And it feels like a place. It feels like a place that somebody would live in. It's the antithesis to Bowser's Castle in the first Super Mario Brothers. Hmm. Hmm. What is Bowser's Castle? Bowser's Castle is not a place that somebody lives in. It exists explicitly for the purpose of keeping a hero out. Right. You have to go through this elaborate maze that you have to figure out to even get to Bowser. Go over this part, go under that part, go through this tube. <laughs> it's it's something that there's a pattern. Nobody builds a building like that. The thing that I love with Rapture is that Rapture is a place that feels like it was built to live in. And if there's a barrier, it's because of the war that broke it apart. Mm -hmm. That's why that hallway is broken. That's why these pipes froze, and that's why I can't get into that passageway. Oh, that guy blew up a bomb. So the things that create barriers to you are part of the story, and they're not part of the design of this place. The DNA isn't built as a maze, because nobody lives in a fucking maze the way you would do in, a, in, a, in an old-school video game. I can see wandering through this place before it was broken and thinking it was absolutely fucking gorgeous. In Bioshock 2, one of the few high points of the multiplayer, which is a lot more fun than you'd think it would be, is that you get to go through your apartment in Rapture before the fall. And I could see why somebody would want to live there. Mm -hmm. Everything is sort of made out of this polished wood and brass. Uh, there's this Art Deco style. There's all these cool neon signs. I mean, even getting past all the racist vending machines, <laughs> like <laughs> the Ammo Bandito right. and the Creepy Clown one. Um, there's just so, so much stuff to explore that even if people weren't trying to murder me, 
I would want to go through this world. I want to walk around Rapture. You know, I can get past the propaganda if I can see these beautiful buildings and these businesses. And I can see how this place would have been a place that somebody did business in, a place that somebody lived in, they got married in, they went to a restaurant in. And you could see, rather than it just being this terrifying place that you see the corpse of, you see what it used to be. And one of the strongest elements that pulls you into that sense of this being a real place, and we said it before, the audio diaries. Yeah. The audio diaries actually do one extra thing that I absolutely love, which is they tell the story of specific citizens who lived in this place before it fell. And you oftentimes find out what their eventual fate is. One of my favorite is uh, Bill Donick. Bill McDonough. Yes. I think his name is. Bill McDonough. Big Bill McDonough. Yeah. He is like this mechanic guy who used to work for Andrew Ryan in the real world. And he was just this guy who always did a good job, who would sometimes come out of his own pocket because he couldn't handle a job being done on the cheap or cutting corners. He actually took pride in his work. And because of that, he got called down to rapture by his boss. And you sort of see him over the course of the story become disillusioned as you get to more and more and more of the compromises that Andrew Ryan made for all his talk about they're not going to control any markets down here. The parasites are going to control it. When he wins the civil war against Fontaine, he nationalizes his business. Mm. And that's the final straw for McDonough, who makes the decision, I need to kill this guy to save the dream. I need to kill the dreamer. And you eventually find his corpse on the path into Andrew Ryan's office. And you see him hung up and you're just like, Holy shit. And I think I like how they also let you fill in the gaps there too, right? Like we were saying earlier about the burial at sea where like they're, here's exactly what happened. It's like, here's this great story and we're going to tell you a lot about it. And then we're going to show you where it happened maybe. And then you can fill in some extra gaps in how it exactly unfolded. Yeah. And I just like that kind of like getting you on the path to that story. That's it's really letting cool. you fill in those fill holes. In, yeah, yeah. I love that yeah. so much. It trusts yeah. your intelligence yes. to be able to figure this stuff out on your own. Because what if you only found one of those audio diaries? You may not get any of this, mm. but the game doesn't feel empty if you don't find all these optional things. The other one that I absolutely love in the audio diaries is the the fate of Doctor Suchong. Doctor yeah. Suchong is essentially the Doctor Mengele of yeah. Bioshock. Yes, he's the one who took the big daddies and chemically bonded them to the little sisters to make them protected. And there's a series of diaries that you see where this guy is essentially a sociopath. He's a genius, but he does not think anything of the morality of his work, which makes him perfect for rapture. He doesn't care who he's working for. He just wants to forward his science. He takes pride in his work. He's brilliant, but he doesn't seem to care about people that he hurts along the way. And finally, his last audio diary, you actually find it in the room with a body that you don't know is his. And it's just this corpse who is being drilled into a table with this broken drill, sort of pinning them like they're like a butterfly in a collection. And it's just gore everywhere. And you find this audio diary off on the side of the room and you listen to it. And it's the last audio diary of Dr. Suchong, who's talking about, well, we're having some issues, chemically bonding um, the little sisters, the big daddy. Um, and this little girl keeps going, Dr. Suchong, Dr. Suchong. And he's like, no, 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 no. And he keeps talking about, oh, they're not responding right. They're not protective enough. And finally, the little girl goes, Dr. Suchong. And he goes, shut up. And he smacks her. And you hear, (laughs) and then it cuts out. And you're like, holy shit, that's Dr. Suchong on the table. They fucking killed him. I just 
love that so much. It's that you don't realize you're looking at the end of a story, that it isn't this thing where the audio diaries are this separate thing from the world. It's all part of this collective web, and you can piece it together and find out that these aren't just people that are there to create ambiance. They are of this world. People lived and died here, and you're coming in after the fact. And I just love the world building that I think is top-notch and I think second to no other game. Hmm. High point. Fantastic. Patrick, high point for Bioshock series. So I'm in along a similar thread. I think the setting is Star, uh, it, and it's the, it's the cities and the place and uh, that we remember. To me, the emotional high point for both games, what I really sticks with me, is the reveal. It's, it's mm-hmm. when you first see the cities. And I remember most of Bioshock 1 because I had no expectations going into the game. I had no idea what I was in store for. And when you go down under underwater and you see... You know the whale floating by, which is sort of like a, the the blimp that you see when you mm-hmm. first see Columbia, right? And the frisson of, of of that moment, that sort of a wonder feeling of wonder, and knowing that you're going to go into and explore those places, and it lives up. I feel every bit to to that um, to that expectation, and from there, I guess the. I don't know. Lost my thread, but <laughs> no. I mean, I think you're right, and you're... I think we've all been saying that setting is the one that does it, you know, and how it initially sets you up to be excited, like the whale, right? Like, what? We're all the way down there. That's pretty far. And and further to that point, um, when there's a window in Bioshock, always look out the window. Oh, oh yes. there's yeah. usually something cool out there. Yes. at least one thing that you haven't seen before, and and might might be there, just happening as a set piece for you to be looking at it. It's great. Well, I'm going to differ from oh. Oh, I was just going to say uh, something else that just occurred to me. I think I'd actually read Fountainhead around the time that I first played Bioshock. Oh. And oh, so yes. I felt really, you know, clever. Uh, you know, every yeah. time I noticed uh, the uh, charity is weakness. And, he definitely oh, yeah. is a Howard Rourke because he is an architect of sorts, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, I'm going to differ from all of you. Of course, I love the Bioshock setting, but I'm not going to be pedestrian as all oh, three of you guys are. Please. <laughs> My high point is Armin Shimmerman as Andrew Ryan. Oh! So, although the credit for writing the character obviously goes to Ken Levine, he created him, he wrote the di- him and there's a couple other writers wrote the dialogue, there's something special that Armin Shimmerman brings to it, that the persona, and part of it might be that as an actor, he's well known for playing Quark, who is also, like Andrew Ryan, like this clever, like sly conniving capitalist guy who uh who you sort of he, who is charming in the ways that he is malicious you know um but andrew ryan is is the bioshock character he's not just a uh, a heavy for for heavy sake right he's not just a baddie and without andrew ryan there's no reason for a bioshock to exist he's this really talented twisted he has like incredibly compelling but twisted logic to his motivations for what Andrew Ryan does, and and at times you, he's almost like he has a, like a world weariness to him when he, you can tell that it's getting away from him. Like he's seeing all of the crazy sacrifices that he's he's having to do. Like when he sees the little sister for the first time, and he re, he you can tell that he realizes in his voice he's like I understand the necessity for these creatures, but uh, but it's weighing on him, you know. So he's he does generate some about sympathy. You get the sense that he carries a responsibility greater than he can contain with his own sanity because that's how crazy of a place the rapture is. Um, Andrew Ryan is like a villain that's like Darth Vader for me. He's like a Darth Vader style villain. Mm. He's the main antagonist, but this, but uh, his substance is like the primary reason why the story exists. If he didn't, if he wasn't there, then the story wouldn't make any sense. And Shimmerman's convincing delivery 
his deep brooding voice, which is different than his quirk voice, which is very high and shrill, but his deep brooding voice, he just wouldn't have been that compelling without Armin Shimmerman's performance. He's so Orson Welles. He's, yeah, he, yeah. It's very much is. It adds gravity to an already complex character and that a lesser actor could have just made it into, into like a com, like a Saturday morning cartoon villain, like a Cobra Commander. You know, it could have been really, really surface and ridiculous. Although, Cobra <laughs> Commander would have been pretty awesome, too. Seize them! <laughs> <laughs> His voiceover work, I think, single-handedly handles most of the expositional heavy lifting for Rapture to communicate that to the player. Um, and I think for him, there wouldn't be an Andrew Ryan without, uh, there wouldn't be a Bioshock without Andrew Ryan, and there would not be an Andrew Ryan without Armin Shimmerman. So, that's my high well point. Well said. All right, gentlemen. Uh, Carlos Rodella, thank you so much for joining us on this panel. Oh, why, thank you. Patrick Johnson. Absolute pleasure. Been a pleasure. And Mike, thank you very much. Thank you, sir. And we'll see you guys next month. Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. What is the difference between a man and a parasite? A man builds, a parasite asks, where is my share? A man creates, a parasite says, what will the neighbors think? A man invents, a parasite says, watch out or you might tread on the toes of God.